Yep. Hence the two-hour uh, session on Max Headroom. <laughs> All of which will be cut or saved for a special... <laughs> a special mini-sode. Yeah, exactly. There totally might be a mini-sode about Matt Frewer. Our show is live. Yeah, super exciting. People seem to be uh, listening to it. One or two people. <laughs> Although we did get, get at least one surprise. So that's, that is, if nothing else, promising. Yes, I want to give a, a special thanks to Robert from upstate New York for being the very first random person on the internet to write in and say nice things about the show. Thank you so much, Robert. That's right. And we're saving It's Just a Show Info Club member number one just for Robert. We also have uh, Matthew from Halifax, who wrote in to say that he's using It's Just a Show to introduce his wife to MST3K. They watched the episode and then they listened to the podcast. Aww. Yeah, that is so sweet. And uh, I hope it works. I hope so, too. But like, how long after the podcast? Because like, are they listening to us while they're, while they're in, the, in, in the biblical act? <laughs> that, is, uh, that is the question. Because uh, Sarah from Mississauga writes to us uh, uh, to say, among other things, uh, uh, that our voices are sultry. Oh, now I have it on good authority that my voice is the exact opposite of sultry, but I'll take it. I I always describe my own voice as nasal. <laughs> I really hope that you have a business card where one of the things listed is adenoidal. <laughs> They're very big. <laughs> <laughs> Check out my noids. But uh, yes, one of the things that Sarah from Mississauga writes in to tell us is that there was just too much Matt Damon bashing uh, uh, and ends her letter with the quote, I like the potato movie. Okay. Um, I like Matt Damon. I have no problem with him. <laughs> I just didn't think it had enough... Uh, Hey, we're on an entirely new planet. Isn't that amazing? And just more about Matt Damon uh, MacGyvering through the landscape. I totally thought we were going to keep our rating scale of is today's experiment better than The Martian? But I completely blanked last time we recorded. <laughs> I will say I think this one is better than The Martian, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> oh my god, yes. <laughs> so last episode, I, I was wondering what the make of Bart Fargo's car was. And Andrew from St. John's figured it out. Ooh. It's an Alfa Romeo Giulietta Sprint Speciale. It's a, it's a Sprint Speciale? It's, it's Italian. Go figure. <laughs> I just, I, I, I saw that and I saw Alfa Romeo Giulietta Sprint Speciale. And I was like, wait, weren't those those like Italian movie stars that Scott Thompson and Dave Foley played on Kids in the Hall? <laughs> uh, oh, and also, uh, Rose in Philadelphia asks, what our favorite episode is? Which... I think I could speak for all of us when I say it is KTMA Episode 3, Star Force Fugitive Alien 2. No question. Mm -hmm. And Trace from Minnesota writes in to say, great show, and that his name is pronounced Bull You. Hmm, sounds, I mean, I've never heard of a, of a surname being said that way. Trace, are you sure you have it right? <laughs> I, but hold on, though. I, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I cannot contain uh, my excitement when uh, uh, Trace actually wrote to us. I couldn't believe it was happening. I, I had two impulses at the same time. I wanted to uh, leap in the air for joy, and I wanted to bury my head in the sand because, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I think this is this is kind of like having somebody 
just say, listen, I've always liked you. It's that. It's that high school awkwardness. <laughs> Your palms are sweaty. Mom's spaghetti. Uh, no, wait, that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but just utter, uh, oh, God, it was like, because you don't really expect that sort of thing. We just kind of like tweeted at him uh, uh, that we mentioned him on the show. And the fact that he listened to it and got back to us uh, and then like retweeted it and kind of gave us a shout out was the nicest thing. And uh, further proof, as I think that uh, we've seen that one Trace Beaulieu has always been a class act and... I am happy to report that It's Just a Show Info Club member number two is reserved specifically for Trace, which you can pick up from our local office. <laughs> this time we looked at season four, episode four, Teenagers from Outer Space. First, they came for Hot Topic and I said nothing, for I was not a Hot Topic. Wait, this isn't a cautionary tale of a world overrun by teens? Derek is a space teen on the run because his boss is like a total dink, man. Said boss wants to drop off a shipment of carnivorous lobsters called gargons to graze on the Earth's resources until they're harvested for space McLobsters. Yes, this movie is about unethical farmers from outer space. I guess they work for Monsanto. <laughs> Derek objects to this plan, ditches gargon duty, and flees into town. The space captain sends eager baddie Thor to capture Derek so the High Court can sentence him to torture. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. Torture! Luckily, everyone in town is willing to explain Earth customs and other basic facts to dudes who are clearly from another planet. Derek sublets a room from a landlord who would accept a hug or Canadian tire money as recompense. Betty, the landlord's granddaughter, falls for Derek. Unbeknownst to them, Thor is on the trail and armed with a Mars Attacks ray gun that reduces its victims to a bleach-white skeleton. Meanwhile, a stray gargon has gone from lobster-sized to RV-sized, develops a high-pitched roar despite lacking vocal cords, and terrorizes the town. Derek and Betty electrocute the giant lobster from beyond the moon and subdue Thor. In the end, Derek sacrifices himself to prevent a gargon invasion. Betty weeps for Derek, and even now, can still hear the lobster screaming. Beth... That's what happened to the theater. But what happened on the Satellite of Love? Well, we begin with a joke that simultaneously dates the show and references the unsettling Milgram experiments as Joel administers an electric shock to Tom and Crow whenever they say NBC mystery movie. In the invention exchange, Joel and the bots unveil a scratch-and-sniff report card whose scents evoke awkward memories of junior high. Meanwhile, the Mads rework a resuscitation doll that looks eerily like Tilda Swinton for a ventriloquist act. I want to go find some chicks! <laughs> but Rasasa, you is a chick! Segment 2 compares the kindly, guileless landlord played by bad movie staple actor Harvey B. Dunn to real-life landlords. Oh, and keep an eye out for the ghostly off-camera presence that surreptitiously removes the discarded cue cards. In segment 3, Joel and the bots jettison some snacks into space and sing the general cinema snack theme as they float towards a space trash can. Segment 4... <laughs> we're, we're going to be talking about what happens in segment four. But for now, let's just say it includes a visit from a totally boss skull spaceship. In segment five, the gang show off fashions inspired by the movie's creative use of duct tape. While Dr. Forrester takes Rosessa Annie, who, it is implied, might be more into chicks, on a date. Perhaps that's why she ends up keeling over. <laughs> I will never tire of Trace Bowie saying, but Annie, you is a chick. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good episode. 
like the movie itself, it has the typical 50s problems of being kind of leaden paced and, and a bit slow at points. But uh, compared to something that had a much higher budget like Rocket Ship XM, this is a much more fun movie to watch. Oh, yeah. And like the effects, yes, obviously they're really goofy, but they're endearing for that reason. Yeah, I, I thought like Rocket Ship XM was like toxically 50s with uh, Lloyd Bridges as Colonel Floyd. But this movie is so endearingly 50s, like it buys into uh, uh, like the, it buys into the hype that I associate with the present day and like the last few decades of people like romanticizing the period rather than like even what movies felt like, like leave it to Beaver is not as wholesome as teenagers from outer space. And it's to the point where it, I, I, I would not have been surprised, especially where like the only actor you recognize is uh, the guy from bride of the monster. Like I wouldn't be surprised if this was like a fake movie that Joe Dante made for matinee. Like it's, it's really, really on the nose in terms of like, what the 50s are like and golly gee whiz america it's it's borderline parody at all times yeah so uh the movie has a very as we said a, a kind of rose glasses version of suburbia that uh was the ideal in the 50s of how to live everyone just has this innate sense of trust and they are more than willing to pick up these strange looking men and let them into their homes and cars, and they are willing to just assume that you're a good person and that you mean them no harm. It is really striking, particularly in the end where Betty calls, I guess, the local uh, power plant and says, turn down the power! And the man on the other line says, okay. <laughs> I grew up in a small town, and I think so did you, Adam. Mm. Was trust in strangers something that you would say is endemic to small town life? Uh, trust strangers? I didn't even trust my own family. <laughs> like, I wouldn't say that they're paranoid, but the way small town life works is that you know everybody and you have a long line of gossip on everyone in town that you can bring to the fore at any point. And the thing about strangers is you don't know who they are and you don't have that protective veneer of gossip to kind of situate them. So my experience, particularly if they were othered in any kind of way, you would not be that welcoming and open-armed about it. And I get the feeling that uh, Harvey B. Dunn's character would have been less inviting if uh, Derek had been, let's say, a black guy. Um, and I think it's Crow that makes the reference to Levittown. Levittown, community of the future. Levittown was a planned community built in 1947. Hmm. And basically, if you want a version of 1950s America. This is it. It was built in Long Island by uh, Levitt and Son. And it became notorious, too, because they wouldn't allow any non-whites to buy houses there for a very long time. Oh, my God. Uh, and this is something that happened throughout uh, the rise of suburbia was the active pushing out of anyone who didn't look the way that they should Yeesh. so there is a dark side to all of this yeah i guess maybe that's the uh the unsettling message of teenagers from outer space is that you know we'll welcome anyone from any galaxy as long as they're white exactly Oof. and yet this is like a, a love letter to suburbia yeah it, it seems very genuine yeah there's no there's no sense of mockery uh, to this, and there's no there's there, there's no sense that anything here is being skewered or satirized. Like it plays to it, pl it almost plays like that to us now, uh, because it is so on the nose about 
you know, gosh, the 50s are so swell. But that definitely wasn't the intention. This is a weirdly, like, lovingly made movie, which makes me like it all the more. Genuine. Because it has this sense of loving relationality that his planet didn't have, which is, uh, we maybe should give some background for it. It doesn't have any women from the looks of it. And babies are born and raised by the state to become basically military figures. And he does have a father who ends up showing up at the end. But people in this species, I suppose, are not supposed to know who their parents are. Essentially, Derek falls in love with the suburbs. That's what makes him decide to offer up his life to save the town. Yeah, it's it's I would I would go so far as to say it's an achingly sincere movie about a monster lobster. So it's really, really endearing to watch. It's a lot of fun. I would have happily watched this movie without the riffing because it's like, it's a perfect goofy sci-fi movie. Like, it's super fun. It's really silly. Yeah. So I really wanted to give a shout out to, I think, the unnamed nurse who is a total badass. <laughs> like uh, At first, I was just like, oh, no, because she's wearing heels. And you do not wear heels if you are a nurse. Uh, you could just easily slip on some entrails. So they generally uh, suggest that you go in flats. But she's introduced by, I think it's Crow, singing some lyrics from uh, Apollonia's Sex Shooter song. Because I'm a sex shooter shooting love in your direction. What? I don't know what that is. Uh, I had to look it up. It's um, so Prince created like an all women's band called Apollonia Six, I think. And uh, they have this song called Sex Shooter. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, they, 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 they grow them fine, them imaginations in Minnesota. That's wonderful. <laughs> and she is cool as ice. Like she sees that there's like a bleeding man and the doorframe of the doctor's office immediately starts treating him like she doesn't need a doctor she's on this <laughs> and she like gives him a shot and bandages him up and then she gets a hold of the doctor and he's like uh, he's he's a murderer you need to get away and then that's when thor wakes up and takes her hostage and she is so cool as a hostage like she does what he says but she's articulate and like she follows his instructions until he threatens to kill other people. And then she's like, no way. And she drives away and refuses to listen to him. And he pistol whips her and takes over driving. And then when he starts to lose consciousness, because he's still very sick, she leaps out of the moving car <laughs> and dumps herself out. So she's one of the few people who um, encounters Thor and survives just because she's so badass. Like, you don't usually see middle-aged women in the 50s being so capable and cool and i really enjoyed that yeah like like i i, I would almost expect her to have that like whistling theme from uh from kill bill playing as she's walking around <laughs> one thing i do want to say this is an all-time favorite episode for me this is this is my like top five one of the best episodes of the show i absolutely adore uh teenagers from outer space it has some great riffs it's the perfect mystery science movie um and the host segments are all on point they're exactly what i want from the show they're weird they are delightful and the first time i saw this episode i had no idea necessarily what they're referencing in either segment four or i believe uh, the the previous segment where they're doing the uh 
intermission by jettisoning all the popcorn and snacks out into a space garbage. And I didn't care. The fact that they were just singing this song as they were giddily watching empty snacks and like soda containers and whatnot fly into a garbage in space, all accomplished with very, very basic line work. I I, I kind of knew it's like, yep, this is a show I like. This is a show for me. Uh, the fact that Mystery Science had a kind of Pee Wee's Playhouse vibe mm-hmm. really, really gelled with me. Yeah, it's definitely better than I remember. I I think I just have maybe a bias against 50s black and white movies, which I hate to say because I don't want to be one of those people. And I, I will say like um, Night of the Blood Beast is definitely in my top 10. But for some reason, this didn't gel with me at the time, but I think it's excellent now. And I, I agree. I like that you use the term peewee's playhouse vibe because i don't know how else to describe like you're right they are actually making a reference in that segment three to the kind of bumpers they use for movies to please clean up your garbage after you're done watching the movie i tried to see if i could find the tune that they're humming but there's just been so many versions of that bumper over the years that it's impossible to find Uh, let's throw it to the listeners. If any of you know what specific song they're singing, we'll put it in the show notes and we'll give you a, a shout out. Yeah, if you can find Bart Fargo's car, you can find this song, can't you? Come on. A child in hospital is depending on your answer. And we put them there to motivate you. <laughs> yes, that's right. Millions more will be injured if you don't find out what this jingle is. But it doesn't matter. Like, even if you didn't get that reference, the fact that they're just gleefully celebrating trash in space and singing a song together, it's so gleeful. And it, it doesn't really matter that you don't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, segment four, which is huh, maybe we should give a, a brief summary of what happens in segment four. Oh, you want to try your best on that one? <laughs> I will try my best. Um, so we open, and Tom and Joel are playing. Uh, Red or black, basically. Like, Tom's trying to guess what the card that Joel is holding up is. So they're just killing time. And then Crow is waxing about the state they're in, the loneliness of space, how they are just uh, like a piece of of food floating in, in the ocean. And neither Joel or Tom are really listening to him. And then uh, it keeps going like this for a while, and you're wondering where the, all of this is going. And then crow says something's on the viewer and we look outside and there's this totally totally boss (laughs) motorcycle skull spaceship that uh kind of stops for a minute and then drives by and they all all three of them get super excited and there's like what kind of music would you describe as playing in the background i would say i would say it's rockabilly I would say that's like a fair uh, uh, kind of a a take on it. I want to ask you this, too. With that skull uh, uh, flaming space motorcycle thingy that uh, that's being (laughs) driven out there uh, that we see loop by the satellite love several times. uh, uh, Does it not look like a a child made a Guar album cover? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's and and the looping like. Uh, it cuts to the skull ship, and then cuts back to uh, the reaction of Joel and the bots, and then does that two more times, like the same loop, for no reason. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then um, they open the viewer because apparently uh, the uh, inhabitant of the rocket ship wants to say hello. And then it opens up and they're like, whoa. And it's just uh, a skeleton, which I suppose is referencing the the skeleton corpses in the movie. And he's floating there and there's some red smoke floating up and some uh, black mesh. You're like, what's going to go on? And then he kind of, after a little while, the skeleton kind of limply waves and then just falls to the ground. <laughs> and then uh, Joel and the boss are just like, that sucked. And that's the end of the sketch. <laughs> it's such a, it's such an anticlimax. You just have the, the little little skeleton. I don't even think any noise is made. You just kind of see it limply waving and it just collapses on the ground. And so we were going over this uh, and our producer, Chris, explained actually that Crow's little soliloquy was inspired by the beginning of the movie that was cut from the MST3K version, where a scientist is looking through a telescope and sees the approaching alien vessel that looks a lot like a drill. And he he's not quite sure what he saw, and he starts waxing philosophical about their innate loneliness. He actually uses the line about being a piece of food in the ocean. It makes me realize how Desperately alone, the Earth is. Hanging in space like a speck of food floating in the ocean. Sooner or later to be swallowed up by some creature floating by. It's actually quite lovely. I'm wondering why they, they had to cut that, because it would have been a great intro to the Misty, I think. But that's where that comes from. But the rest of it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, what I loved was that there was a note, like there was a note from Chris uh, uh, saying that segment four is referencing the opening of the movie. And I suppose you and I probably had the same thought, which was, oh, this will explain the sketch. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir, it does not. I have to say, I, I liked the little moment with the two scientists where they just kind of wax philosophical about the state of humanity. I thought it was actually not badly written, which makes me wonder a little bit more about the producer of this movie, the creator, Tom Groff, I think you would say his name is. So I ended up doing a bit of a, a digging up on this guy because I was curious how how this happened. How do you make how do you make teenagers from outer space? And did this guy have a career afterwards? And looking it over, I found out that the answer was pretty much no, not really. Essentially, this started off, this was like an independent movie. And it was going to be this this nice space movie that he wrote, produced, and directed. And probably catered. Oh, yeah. And I forgot, too. He plays Joe. He's the reporter in the movie. And I totally forgot. But, yeah, he's, uh, he's the guy. Who's uh, who masterminded this whole project. And I guess the most notable thing is that the reason that Derek, who I'm not going to say is the worst actor in the movie, <laughs> but is definitely like neck and neck for whoever else would be there. The only reason Derek uh, is played by the amazingly named and sadly uh, it's a pseudonym, but the amazingly named actor David Love is because he was uh, Groff's lover at the time. He loved David Love. I mean, he certainly looks like a lead man. Like, he's very handsome. So if you make him an alien, then it, then the fact that he can't intonate properly is, is you know, just part of the species. <laughs> and you know what? That, that kind of plays like a strange benefit. With the unusual way that Derek speaks, it almost kind of works to the movie's advantage where it does sound like 
a guy who does not know English very well. And it turns out that um, according to, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it Tom Griff's uh, uh, official website or, uh, or a tribute website, but someone has amassed like a fair bit of information about the film at a website that'll be in our show notes, TomGrave.org. <laughs> or rather, it's got a weird address it's boymovie.tomgrave.org why is it boy movie <laughs> boy movie <laughs> chris i don't want to to get a visit from my local fbi agent saying excuse me adam do you have an interest in boy movies because i most certainly do not huh i just checked and there is also a tomgrave.com oh weird somebody's a fan i they might be different fan sites are they are they competing fan sites? As far as I can tell, they are competing fan sites. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this guy's doing a documentary? Well, because, and, and maybe we should mention, and you might know a little bit more about this, Adam, than I do, but after... So this movie did not do well, and there was some kind of legal wrangling about it, and Tom Groff had basically put everything on this, his money, his reputation, and it flopped. And he kind of lost his mind for a little bit afterwards. He had a nervous breakdown. He thought he was Jesus Christ returned. He wanted to change his name to Jesus Christ 2. And basically kind of fully hit the 60s and all of, all of what that entails and eventually ended up committing suicide, I believe. So it had a tragic end, which is really too bad because this movie is not perfect, but I think that shows that there was something there. Yeah. And I will say this, like, I'm I'm just going to go down on a limb that, and assume that he didn't invent the laser ray turns you into a bleach white skeleton that collapses to the ground. But it's pulled off. It's like it's a cheesy effect, but it's pulled off really nicely. Like, it's always fun to see it happen. It's a fun. And when it first happens, it's genuinely shocking because the first thing that's killed in this movie is a small dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very shocking. Yeah, it's it's not only weirdly harsh for a movie of the 50s. It's weirdly harsh for this movie, which has like essentially all of the mean spiritedness of your average Care Bears episode. Like, it's such a sweet and good-natured movie, which I think made me like it all the more. Like, there was something... It almost felt like, had I not known about Tom Groff, I would have just assumed that the town made the movie and everybody in the town loved each other. Like, it just has that feel. Like, that that, that this was like a small community project, but instead it was like the work of one, uh, uh, one man, one man with a vision. One thing I do know about the financial issues that he had, and I'm not entirely sure, I believe it was the actor who played Thor. Thor was one of the investors in the movie. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, one of the one of the actors. I believe it's Thor. Uh, uh, there may be a postscript saying from Chris saying it's not Thor. I'm I'm going to sneak in and say that most of the actors, except for Harvey B. Dunn, were financial backers of the film. Oh, oh, wow! I I did not know that. Um, but essentially, one of them in particular, and uh, and he was a baddie, uh, had invested uh five thousand dollars into the movie apparently. And, uh, you know, he he was taken to, to court afterwards. Tom Groff was taken to court. Uh, and this also played into his financial troubles. And apparently, um, you know, this actor and Groff, like, they were best friends. They were they, they knew each other extremely well. So that's why getting five thousand dollars from the guy was not 
exactly difficult, but apparently this soured the relationship to the point where like they didn't even speak. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And and I don't want to I don't want to end things on a bummer. So, I have a I have a weird maybe not uplifting note, but a weirdly nice note uh for the Tom Graf story to end on. So, a lot of people celebrate say Ed Wood uh, to whom Tom Groff's movie Teenagers from Outer Space bears uh, a certain resemblance and also shares an actor, which we'll definitely go into, with the oeuvre of Ed Wood. And it's a fun story on, on the surface, and the movies themselves are fun and fun to watch. And, you know, it ends with this person going broke, and they never really recover from becoming destitute, as, you know, Ed Wood's final days are also quite sad. But the tributes to these people are really loving and they've kind of outlasted and eclipsed uh, their real life stories. Like everyone knows Ed Wood. Uh, one of the few Tim Burton movies that people can agree on is actually good. <laughs> I will back up that. <laughs> yeah. Something Tim Burton has not made since, oh, I don't know, Ed Wood, a really good movie. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I would say that's probably, in my mind, the last good movie he made. Yeah. I mean, like for a guy who started off, make, his first two movies were Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. Come on. Should have been great. Oh, well. Anyway, Tim Burton, not not so great now. But Ed Wood, celebration. And rather than showing you those you know, sad final days where he's like begging people for money and like strung out on alcohol and, and whatnot all the time. Um, you just get the sense that it's like, well, you can't stamp Ed Wood. You can't just rain on his parade. You can't end his dream. He's going to make it someday. Like the pluckiness of him as a person is front and center and never gets diminished in uh, the story of his life in the movie. And with uh, Tom Graff, while less well-known and certainly less prolific, there's a weird tribute to him in a TV show called Mission Hill. Did you ever watch that? No, I never did. Okay, so Mission Hill it's a, it was a cartoon devised by uh, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, uh, the other uh, <laughs> the other Josh Weinstein, not J. Elvis Weinstein, who, uh, who participated in MST3K. Um, and they were former showrunners of The Simpsons and, like, writers uh, for The Simpsons during the 90s. And in the season finale of Mission Hill, two of the characters, supporting characters on the show, were a projectionist and, and his husband. Uh, their, their names were Wally and Gus. And Wally was kind of a, uh, like, a soft-spoken, bespectacled, uh, 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 nebbish type. And Gus was this, like, ton of bricks. He was this giant, gravelly-voiced guy. And it's revealed in the in the last episode of the show that they met when Wally was making a movie. Wally made a single film called The Man from Pluto, and he so fell in love with Gus that he insisted that Gus play the title character. And that's so close to the story of Teenagers from Outer Space that there's, like, there's no way that's a coincidence. And sure enough, the man from Pluto uh, led to him abandoning his career as a director and becoming a movie projectionist. So it's I, I, it's too close. It's that can't be a coincidence. Would you recommend our uh, listeners ch try to check out Mission Hill? It's totally okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, it was perfectly fine. Uh, it had its moments. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's an animated series from uh, from people who did The Simpsons. So you know what? If you liked The Critic, chances are you might like this. So, uh, uh, Beth, there was something super super familiar about 
Betty's kindly grandfather. And I just can't quite put my finger on it. Could you tell me what it is? He is extremely familiar to anyone who is even a casual viewer of Mystery Science Theater 3000 because he was in a lot of bad movies in the 50s and 60s. I'm actually surprised when I looked into his filmography that he didn't do more because he just seems so familiar. He has an amazingly soothing and calming presence and he's a good actor relatively speaking (laughs) oh yeah i I totally agree like i think that he has a reliable presence in the movie like he's just a a a solid working character actor who happens to sound like what a cartoon sheepdog would sound like yes exactly um and he was in of course bride of the monster he was in a lot of uh westerns oh that makes sense he was even in like some bigger movies like sabrina (laughs) what yeah, he did, but he tended not to be credited. So Aww. in bigger movies, he was kind of just a background extra. Aww. Well, not an extra. Like he, he usually had lines, but he wasn't big enough to be credited in those uh, shorter credit sequences that they had in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, that's that's like not uncommon for the time, even though like now if someone's not credited in a movie, it's super weird because you will see in modern movie credits, woman who sat at restaurant. Exactly. Oh, and he was also in uh, another Edward film, The Sinister urge which is in my top 10 without a doubt oh that's a fantastic fantastic episode uh so for fans of mst3k uh you probably know harvey b dunn best from his parting lines in bride of the monster where he says he tampered in god's domain he tampered in god's domain and i can't tell you how many times i laughed at that reference with episodes of mst i saw before seeing Bride of the Monster in either like MST or unmisted form, it was usually like Trace doing the voice. It was usually someone would go, Oh, he tampered in God's domain. Like that would just make me laugh every time. <laughs> yeah, because they gave it like a Minnesotan kind of spin on it. Yeah, like as folksy as he sounds in the movie, like that just got amped up with each successive impression of him uh, uh, to the point where I, I, for a while, I misremembered he tampered in God's domain as being part of a weird uh, short that they watch uh, in season six about or season five or six about um, railway safety because there's a great line in that short where uh, a guy who sounds exactly like Harvey B. Dunn goes why won't they look (laughs) yeah they love that line too oh god yes that's also when we get to that episode that's one of my favorite sketches which is where crow keeps popping in wearing a uh, literal pencil mustache he just has a pencil tape to his beak and keeps popping off that line um another interesting fact about harvey b dunn is that he only had nine fingers and this apparently caused him a lot of grief because eventually he got printed cards made to put out to people who asked why he had a missing finger and it goes a little something like this the story of my finger cut off july 18th 1908 caught in a cogwheel of a printing press at the press and decoton office yankton sd while working around the press attending physician dr morehouse i did not sue for damages I can write just as well now, if not better, than before the incident. The stub of the finger has the tendency to melt in summer and freeze in winter. 
I swear this is a true statement to the best of my knowledge. Sincerely yours, Harvey B. Dunn. <laughs> oh wow! Um, I I just think it would be perfect if there was like an audio recording of that. It's like I did not sue for damages. Like it would be perfect from his little sheepy weepy voice. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to have put on a card so you don't have to keep repeating it ad nauseum, Adam? Okay, so I am a mutt. In terms of my ethnicity, my blood is a mixture of Lebanese and British, and I was born and raised in Newfoundland. And so now people stop me all the time and ask me if I am Italian or Jewish, and I always have to say neither. Mm. So in a weird way, I think perhaps the most useful thing to have would not be a card that says I'm Lebanese, but just a card that says no. (laughs) And I think we should all carry those on us at all times. It's just safer that way. For me, it would also be something associated with my appearance. I am very tall, especially for a woman. I'm I'm six feet tall. And wait, Beth's a woman. <laughs> no one told me this. I should also mention that in terms of uh, averages, I am taller than the male average too. It gets a lot of comments from strangers who don't have good sense of boundaries. Boo! I had a boss for a little while who wouldn't talk to me unless I was sitting down. He found the fact that I was so much taller than him a little threatening. What? I would love to just have a car that said, yes, I am tall. Thank you for pointing it out to me, citizen. Yes, I used to play basketball. Yes, it is hard to find clothes that are long enough sometimes. And like, I realize that being called tall is completely neutral and in some cases could even be considered a compliment, but it's really disconcerting to just be minding your own business, walking down the street, and then somebody just starts talking to you about something that you can't do anything about and you're not sure how you're supposed to react to that. It just reminds you that you're standing out in a way that you have no control over. Well, Beth, I have uh, I have two suggestions because one, that sounds like that card is going to be the size of a billboard. <laughs> I, I suggest that either you, you too take a card that just says no, or perhaps you take a card that just says fuck off. Do you want to talk about some Recessa Annie? Oh my god, yes. Because Annie, you is a chick. <laughs> Recessa Annie, like, I just kind of assumed was a joke for the show. Like, I didn't think that CPR mannequins had a name. But Recessa Annie is, like, the brand name for uh, a CPR mannequin. It's like uh, calling, um, you know, um, adhesive strips band-aids or uh, referring to a TV dinner as a Swanson, as we did in my house. (laughs) And probably, uh, uh, I'm sure if I was born at a later date, we'd call them Hungry Man because you all want a solid pound of sodium. Or Lean Cuisine. (laughs) Dare dare I dream of Lean Cuisine? You too can have like a microwaved but still not fully cooked carrot go down your throat (laughs) along with a tasty rice dish. But Recessa Annie, as it turns out, is uh, uh, based on a death mask. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Okay, so so there was a, a, a death mask uh, that was made allegedly of a uh, woman who drowned in, uh, in the River Seine. Uh, so, yeah, it's known as like Lancanu de la Seine. And so there's, there was this death mask made. But if you see the actual death mask... This this uh, kind of like porcelain bust or, or whatever it is, um, which will be in the show notes. This face is like smiling. It's almost kind of a, a, a blissful smile. And not to be gross, but anybody who knows about drowning would know that, you know, you're, you're, you would become bloated. Your face would be distended. You would not have this sort of like 
peaceful reverie on your face. So the uh, the origin of the face of Rasessa Annie has been subject to debate. And there's been a number of kind of tall tales made up about it. And in fact, one of the things was later outed as totally made up. An artist in Oxford named John Gatto, he, he claimed uh, and posted, you know, quote unquote, evidence on his website that uh, it was a Hungarian actress, it was the face of uh, someone named Iwa Laszlo or Eva Laszlo, uh, who was murdered by her lover. But that, again, wouldn't really explain the the blissful expression. So if you or someone you love knows the origin of L'Inconnu, please write in to Unsolved Mysteries, P.O. Box 1449, Burbank, California, H-O-H-O-H-O, Canada. But 1955 is the date of Rasasa Annie, from what I found. There was a Norwegian toy maker named Asmund Lairdal. And he's the guy who created Recessa Annie. And in fact, if you look up Recessa Annie, like it brings you to Lairdell.com. So that, I guess, is what they're known for best now is making uh, those CPR mannequins. Uh, but yeah, he was uh, he was approached to uh, create a doll that could be used to teach CPR. And I don't know if the person approaching him knew this or not, but he actually did save his son Tor from drowning by performing cpr on him so he had some experience with it and yeah weirdly enough that uh that became the the default for uh uh, cpr dolls i have a working theory that it was anticipating tilda swinton and now she's been realized in the flesh (laughs) so how many uh how many cpr mannequin sacrifices to the (laughs) to the local pagan god did there have to be before tilda swinton walked the earth many many (laughs) when there's no more cpr mannequins in hell tilda swinton will walk the earth Uh, that's so strange that they didn't like branch out from that model. There are different there are different models of face. I've seen because like I work with a number of hospitals, and I've seen dummies for for different things that to, they're used to to teach students. Uh, there's one uh, in particular at uh, at the medical school that I usually work for uh, that bears an uncanny resemblance to late period Johnny Carson, <laughs> which I, I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes when the uh, when the lights are out, I just kind of put him in a chair and pretend to be Burt Reynolds <laughs> telling my amusing anecdotes on a gurney and reenact his playboy poses. <laughs> I actually didn't know that you had a lot of contact with... Uh dolls both cpr and otherwise (laughs) that's an unfortunate sentence (laughs) but uh i did recently watch something on that note and i'm curious if if you've seen it because i don't know about you beth now beth you're a a netflix subscriber Mm -hmm. which is how we watch this episode that's right not that they sponsor us though they should um but i don't know if you're like me beth but whenever i um am kind of browsing through netflix if there is a weird documentary title, I am compelled to watch it. I certainly have that urge. Yeah, and one of the uh, one of the last things I watched uh, was a movie that was called My Sex Robot. Sadly, you know, you would think that okay, I'm not going to kink shame, but listen, I'm not a pervo nice person who uh, 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 wants to have sex with the uh, gear people and and whatnot. I don't want to have sex with electro men and electro ladies or electro whatevs, but. I, I am appalled by the lack of imagination when it comes to sex robots. Because I when I hear my sex robot, I'm like, oh, are people going to make like 
satellite love characters. Oh, no. Because you could theoretically make a robot to be anything. Like, is it going to look like, uh, is, is it going to look like Tweaky from Buck Rogers? Is it, is, is it, is it going to look like uh, uh, C-3PO? Like, what's it going to look like? You could make it anything. It could be a car. It could be anything. So why is it, uh, why is it like uh, uh, sad, wax-looking mannequins? all the time like there was one i posted a picture of it on facebook there was one where i kid you not he looked like david foster wallace and they even put a a handkerchief on his head all right so your description of possible uh satellite of love sex dolls is making my observation that tom servo had flesh-colored hands in this episode all the more creepy it's is there any explanation for this? Because, like, I, I didn't remember this until I rewatched the episode, and I immediately went, ah! I, I, I pulled back from the TV in disgust. Okay, so the mechanics of the Uncanny Valley, the way it apparently works, is the more that uh, non-human artificial creations come to the human, the creepier they get. So, uh, like, androids and whatnot can be can be very creepy. That is the word for it. The response that humans have to this uh, creation is creep. And Tom Servo does not look like a human being by any stretch of the imagination, but as soon as they gave him flesh-colored hands, I was just like, ugh, no. <laughs> yeah, because, like, by giving him human mitts, maybe my mind is just sinister, I, I can't say for sure, but like I saw those, and in the back of my head, uh, I, I, all I thought was, "Oh God, Tom Servo has murder hands." <laughs> yeah, what is this, uh, that movie? Is it Idle Hands, where he gets murder hands? Yes, yeah, it's it's based on an old story called "The Hands of Orlack." Hands of Orlack. Yeah, it's believe it or not, it's been made as a movie at least three times uh, uh, under that title. Uh, one of the adaptations uh, features uh, Warrior of the Lost World and Puma Man bad guy Donald Pleasance. Yeah, hands of Orlack, everybody. <laughs> Read it with someone you love as a bedtime story. Uh, just just backtracking a little bit, I remember there being various like weird bot modifications that like they would try out, like in the uh, opening credits for like most of Joel's era. There's sometimes uh, like a clip from where Tom Servo got a haircut, which means he had that weird cylindrical tube head for. A oh while. yeah, that was not fun. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, you know, there was also uh, that I, I had initially thought that maybe it was like a running bit and that this episode, the teenagers from outer space must have followed the episode where uh, Tom wants to be a real live boy. So Crow paints him flesh colored. <laughs> oh, OK. But I'm pretty sure that's Ega. So that's like next season. Interesting. So I, I have I have no idea why he just suddenly has these these fleshy hands, but it is deeply unsettling <laughs> it's so funny uh because these are these are odd creations but they're cute they're cute um but uh yeah tom servo crow t robot and gypsy like they're they're cobbled together and strangely cute and it is really disturbing if they do anything to them yeah <laughs> have you ever seen um or have you seen recently like the uh the credits for when the show was on public access because like every time they um 
every time they would revise the credits, since they never had a model for Canva, their, uh, our, our look into MST3K, um, they would always have a different design for every time they did the credits. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So if you look at, um, if you look at say, like Joel's, uh, Joel's uh, credits, it's like this uh, cute little little thing that has like a uh, a Tom Servo beak and like a camera in its head, like one of the camera centibytes from Hellraiser Three. But then after that, it looks almost like a frisbee with a camera inside for some of the Mike era. But there's a weirdly demonic looking version that's in the KTM era that has these horrible little yellow eyes that I will definitely send a copy of to Chris so we can put in the show notes because I was horrified by this like little red creature with uh, with horrible yellow eyes that's like. Hop, hops out from behind the camera like a jump scare. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's also nightmare fuel in its own little kid show way. Speaking of creepy, monstrous things, what did you think of the uh, monsters in this movie? Well, I'll give them an A for imagination. Imagination. Uh, in that I don't think I've ever seen a giant shadow lobster before that happens to roar like an elephant. <laughs> It sounds like uh, Kristen Shaw pretending to be a pterodactyl. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the weakest movie monsters that I have ever seen is, okay, what's going to build up to giant size? It's not even like a thing that you're inherently afraid of. Like, most people are scared of spiders uh, uh, on various kind of insects. So giant bugs make sense. But but are, are, are you afraid of the, of the creature they call the sea beetle, Beth? Are you afraid of lobsters? Uh... I certainly wouldn't want one to be crawling on me. Like, if you're from the Midwest, maybe lobsters are really terrifying. <laughs> Strange and exotic foods from Maine. Exactly. Like, and I also grew up in uh, a rural setting uh, that was landlocked. And I don't think I ever had a good piece of seafood until I went to university. Like, it just is not something you get exposed to. So... Maybe there is something a little bit uh, scary for a lot of the population in the 50s about a lobster. Then you raise an interesting question, and that is if it's exotic food or creatures that are that can be made into food uh, that would frighten people, would this movie be as or more effective if instead of a lobster, the gargon was just a giant shawarma sandwich? <laughs> Oh, no, the spices. <laughs> we have to use a higher dose of electricity. It won't go through the foil. <laughs> but you know what? I, I fear no lobster because I feel like, in my own way, I can relate to the lobster because of a horrifying little anecdote that I'm going to tell you. I was having dinner with a friend of mine a few years ago, and uh, the restaurant bar that we were at has a lobster tank. Not uncommon for a place that serves seafood. But we keep looking at the lobsters because it's weird. That they have creatures. I mean, you, th you don't think about this uh, 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 because you're, you're kind of like acclimatized to it now. But it is weird that living creatures are in jail <laughs> in front of you uh, uh, waiting to be boiled alive. <laughs> you usually don't watch the animal that you're about to eat in most places. But we were just there for uh, 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 beers and poutine. However... I, you know, I find lobsters to be weirdly cute. I'm not going to lie. I, th I think they're kind of sweet. Well, Homer Simpson does too, so you're not alone. Yeah. Um, like there's <laughs> what's weird, and this is horribly nerdy. It's like when I remember when the Simpsons did that episode where uh, Homer gets Pinchy the lobster. I remember thinking, wait a minute. This is a ripoff of that episode of Garfield and Friends where Garfield adopts a lobster. 
have not seen that one. You know what? Yeah, you can skip it. <laughs> but uh, like, I find I find lobsters cute. So uh, when my friend went to the washroom, I just started watching the lobsters, and some lobsters were just kind of like. They didn't look like they were fighting, but I saw like a couple were just kind of running around and I was just watching them as though it was a day at the zoo. And it seems like in a skirmish, a lobster's arm fell off. Oh, no. A lobster's arm fell off and the lobster who was now partially disarmed was just kind of like looking around and all the other lobsters stopped. And one lobster walked over, picked up the detached arm. And passed it back to the lobster as if to say, I think you dropped this. So you know what? I don't think man is a feeling creature. I think lobsters are a feeling creature. But that is a real thing that I witnessed. So if if you were in the actual movie The Lobster by Yorgos Lanthimos, you would also decide to be a lobster if you weren't paired with anybody? Yeah. I, I, I You know what? That's on my Netflix queue. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. But I would definitely be like uh, uh, Lee Van Cleef and It Conquered the World, where it's like, no, I, I think it's trying to communicate with us. I think it's nice. I have seen The Lobster, and it is uh, the first hour is amazing. That's all I'll say about that. So, Chris, do we have any questions from listeners this time around? We sure do. Uh, Ambrose from Toronto asks, Can you guys think of an old, cheesy movie that had a good enough core idea or plot or group of characters that it could be made into a good TV series today? It's funny. It's like an old cheesy movie that would be good enough for for a TV series. It's funny is that like I immediately thought of Teenagers from Outer Space just because it has, I think, the plot of every young adult novel. <laughs> you have a special teen uh, uh, who is rebelling against a totalitarian regime and finds love uh, in the suburbs. That sounds like the perfect recipe for like a cost effective TV show. Um, and certainly would be like the plot of a, a young adult novel, but uh, a cheesy movie that make a good show. Um, there's a there's a film called Raw Meat, which is about a cannibal that looks like Alan Moore running around the London underground, and it's pretty good. It's fine. Uh, it's a it's a totally decent early seventies horror movie. That's not what I wa- would want to keep. The star of the movie uh, is Donald Pleasance playing this drunk acerbic, sarcastic, even a little bit mean inspector who's in charge of this ward in London and is frequently running afoul uh, in the movie and presumably in a TV series based on the movie uh, uh, of like MI5. Like he has a running history with an MI5 agent played by Christopher Lee and they get into spats. Uh, I would totally watch a movie or sorry, I would totally watch a TV series in which this character, Inspector Calhoun, is just solving, not even supernatural cases, just solving cases, while at the same time constantly complaining about uh, T not being in, uh, not being loose and being in bags, throwing darts in his office, and threatening to arrest someone because they tried to kick him out of his bar because he's playing pinball too loudly. It is a tour de force performance and a character I would totally watch each and every week. You know what? I think uh, the movie uh, Return to Oz is amazing and created a a universe that 
took on Frank Baum's creation and made it super, I don't know, almost cyberpunky. And I would love to see that world dwelt in a little bit more with the wheelers and Mombi and the strange kind of 19th century creep that they put in there. I think that would be an amazing setting for a TV series. Oh, God. Return to Oz is a fantastic and totally underrated movie. And you know what? It's a controversial stand, but I'm making it now. Best of the Oz films. <laughs> Take that MGM and your lollipop brigade. That's right. Sam Raimi's Return to Oz. <laughs> or not Sam Raimi's Return to Oz. Sam Raimi's, I don't know, The Wiz. I forget what that was called. The one with James Franco. Throw that in the dumpster. Uh, Ad- Adam, that movie is Oz the Great and Powerful. That movie is Oz the Great and Powerful. And man, that movie sucks. Don't allow anyone to see it. I, Sam Raimi, I'm calling him out. I want him to deliver either A, a public apology for Oz the Great and Powerful, or B, a definitive sequel to Darkman. I'll accept either. Yeah, Return to Return to Oz is great. Um, and it has that wonderful, I think, is this Mombi, the, the wonderful Kate Bush witch who collects people's heads? That is exactly Princess Mombi. Oh, I love it. And the only way in which Return to Oz pales to the original is that somehow uh, uh, the special effects in creating a Scarecrow, a Lion, and a Tin Man are worse in the 80s than in like 1939. <laughs> Well, they used uh, what I have to assume to be some kind of Muppet as opposed to just humans in costumes. So Yeah, yeah. It was like uh, uh, animatronic effects, but like Scarecrow in particular looks really, really derpy. Yeah, he does. But TikTok is incredible. Oh, TikTok rules. I don't even know how they managed that, but he looks like an actual mechanical man. Yeah. And like, uh, why why, why is no one in the My Sex Robot talk making a, making a TikTok? <laughs> That's the question. Don't you want to don't you want to have sex with like a clockwork Wilfred Brimley? I know someone must. If you've been affected by the issues on this show, or if you found that specific pre-film snack jingle, or if you'd like to ask Beth and Adam a random question, get in touch with us. Email us at info at itsjustashow.com, visit our website at itsjustashow.com, or we're on Twitter at it is just a show. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to follow up on anything that was mentioned on this episode of It's Just a Show, you'll find links in our show notes at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash three. Okay, Beth, Adam, good news. I finally heard back from the High Court. Really, really nice guys. Not nearly as uptight as Thor made them out to be. Anyway, the High Court has decided to sentence you to future war. That's uh, season 10, episode four. Some people say it's one of the 10 best episodes of Mystery Science Theater of all time. So that sounds a lot better than, you know, torture. Huh. Did you, have you seen this episode? Probably. <laughs> I, uh, I vaguely, when I hear that word, I, I think of dinosaurs. I think this movie had dinosaurs. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think this is a, this is a cheap dinosaur movie. And I think this is one of like, I think this is one of like the more recent movies featured on the show, like something from the mid or early nineties. Right. But I've never seen this. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Thinking about it more, I'm pretty sure it's a Terminator ripoff of some kind that also adds dinosaurs. But beyond that, I can't tell you any more about it. But I'm looking forward to it. We haven't done a sci-fi era episode yet. Yeah, and Terminator with dinosaurs sounds like a great movie. What could they possibly riff on there? Um, I, I also have not seen this episode, so I'm excited to see it. It's from 1997. That must be the most recent movie they've ever done. Direct a video sci-fi film about an escaped human slave fleeing his cyborg masters and seeking refuge on Earth. Yes, he is being pursued by cyborg slavers and dinosaurs <laughs> that they use as trackers. 
Oh my god. This might be too much. This sounds like the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> can we just watch Future War on its own? You can do whatever you'd like, but right now you should probably say goodbye until next time. Goodbye, everybody. Until next time, which is probably two weeks from now, unless you're binge listening to this, in which case the next episode's going to come right away. So uh, forget everything I said. I live in you always. Oh, wait, that sounds gross. <laughs> Tom Servo has murder hands. <laughs>